Have you ever wanted to have some tools that could help you assess the psychological and emotional well-being of your students every day? Have you ever wondered how you might help students process their experiences and the impacts of COVID-19? Or have you ever wondered how you could psychologically navigate a district or a school that continues to support racial injustice? If you can relate to any of these scenarios, then you are in the right place. Hi, I'm Dr. Terrence L. Green. I'm a tenure professor, and I've helped to prepare hundreds of racially just and anti-racist school leaders, and I want to help you. That's why I created this podcast to provide you and your team with real-world insights and practices that work so that you can collectively build racially just schools. In this episode, I had the privilege of speaking with Dr. Rihanna Elise Anderson. Dr. Anderson is a former elementary school teacher and is currently an assistant professor in the School of Public Health at the University of Michigan. Dr. Anderson has received many awards for her research and has been a powerful force in sharing her work with public audiences and outlets such as CNN, The Today Show and CBS, just to name a few. During our conversation, we discussed mental health and trauma and specifically racial trauma. We also talked about how people working in schools might help youth process COVID-19 and everything that it has and continues to bring. And Dr. Anderson shares some strategies on how to check in on your students daily to see how they are doing emotionally and psychologically. Finally, we talked about how to navigate psychologically being in a school or district or an organization that is institutionally hypocritical. Before we get into today's episode, I want to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by www.raciallyjustschools.com. And when you join our community today, I will send you a free video on how to make your racial justice work better. I'm excited about you joining the community and I look forward to meeting you. And now for today's episode, I hope you enjoy it. Let's go. You're listening to the Racially Just Schools podcast, the show that provides resources to help you and your team build racially just schools. Now, here's your host, Dr. Terrence L. Green. Welcome to the Racially Just Schools podcast. My name is Dr. Terrence L. Green, and I am your host, And I am super excited that you are here for today's episode. Now, before we get up in this mug, I just got to tell you, (laughs) this is going to be off the chain because we have (laughs) the one and only Dr. Rihanna Elise Anderson, who has been on CNN, NBC, Today Show. Here we go. (laughs) But here we go. More than anything, she's from the D. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Anderson. What is the only way I can respond to that is what up though? What up, what up though? though? <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking time to be here. I'm excited to talk to you about uh, mental health and about race, um, and talking to Black youth and families about race and racism and Black children. But before we begin, we really like to humanize the folks here, um, and so folks can understand people as people, our guests as people. And so to begin, if you could think about your professional journey as a movie trailer, who would be some of the people, some of the organizations and institutions and some of the experiences that were critical for you getting to where you are right now? Ooh, that is the best question I've ever heard in my whole life. Um, You know, you've already mentioned the word 
Detroit, which would be the backdrop, the storyline, the soundtrack. Like D- Detroit plays such a prominent role in my life and who I am and my people, my family. So that would just visually um, be a, an important part of the aesthetic and the sound of it. And there's something about Detroiters. If you know Detroiters, that that sense of pride, that sense of um, grit, not used in the psych term way, but the the resilience with which it's like you could throw whatever at us and we still going to be there. We still going to make it. So I, I see the visual of like, you know, gray and hard work and an ethic and an ethos and this sound of, of hard work. Um, which gets me to the University of Michigan, which takes me through Atlanta and all these other cities, and then brings me right back home. Mm. Um, so I see this this arc, this storyline that brings me back and gives me not just the choice, but the privilege of coming back home. So whatever that arc looks like in two minutes, that's really important. Black women uh, play such an important role. My mother, my grandmother, my aunts, mm. Um, so many mentors, but I can't leave out my grandfather, my, my black grandfather, who is the love of my life, someone who was my best friend growing up. Um, so these are the people who, when I think about why I do what I do, it's because of them, the time and the energy that they invested into me. Um, and I will give more thoughts to this amazing question, but those are some of the things that come to top of mind. Um, I want to jump right in because there is a lot that has been happening, a lot that is going on. And, you know, over the last 20 plus months, um, folks have been dealing with a lot from living into a global pandemic to ongoing racial reckonings that have shown up differently in the summer of 2020 in some new and profound ways. And, uh, you know, folks in schools are feeling depleted. I talk to teachers and administrators and youth are feeling psychologically depleted. And there have been some newfound buzzwords that have come to the fore in education, particularly around mental health and trauma. And so I would love if you could just kind of first break down for us, like what is mental health and what is trauma? Because they've seemed to become everything and no thing all at the same time. And they seem to be weaponized in ways to pathologize black youth and black families. And so could you talk about just what is mental health and then what is trauma? Yeah, these are really important questions to start with. And even the context that you provided um, is giving me so much to to think about and how we're using them. I love this idea of all things and and no things at the same time. So when I think about mental health, the way that I define that is how are you functioning? In what ways is your mind and body functioning? For many of us, we have a baseline And we know when we're off that baseline. And I I always use this idea of the Charlie Brown kind of scribbles above the head. Whenever I I can feel that, then I know that I'm stressed. Whenever it's challenging for me to to wake up and to physically get out the bed, I know something's going on. So, So there's a baseline for me of functioning. And some people, as they start to develop challenges to oftentimes the world, right? It's, it's most people don't just by themselves become unwell or struggle with functioning. Oftentimes it's in response to what's going on in the world. 
that's when our mental health and wellness becomes um, either dysfunctional or something that is not to the standard with, with which we're used to functioning. So that's how I think about uh, the basic mental health of most people. When we start to get to pathology or where we're starting to diagnose some more severe mental health problems, certainly there are greater diagnostic criteria that you might um, be experiencing the world through a lens of, of seeing challenges that aren't actually there, that aren't actually present. You might be thinking about an exponential um, outcome when really that's not likely. So you might be aggrandizing what is possible. So I think you might think of that as a magnifying lens or a set of glasses that, that aren't accurately depicting what's going on in the world that for people with more pathology could be more accurate for them, that they're experiencing things that aren't either real or are are at a, a much greater extent than what they're even seeing. So that that might be a more severe pathology that the vast majority of, of people aren't experiencing. Trauma then is just um, how we're thinking about some of the stressors that people are experiencing. So I talked about how the world might put a pressure or, or something on an individual that makes them react to it. So the basic form of stress is essentially, do you have enough space in your hand to manage everything that you're being asked to hold, right? So do the demands and resources match? Once you have too many demands and your resources aren't equipped to handle that, that means that the stress could be winning in that situation. It might be more than you can handle, but trauma in particular is the way that we handle the stress that already has occurred. So, so do we continue to pick up that set of glasses that we look at the world through? Do we continue to open up the blind to this past event? Do we block our, our next steps because of what's happened to us? Trauma is the way that we react to a stressor that is a bit too overwhelming for us. Um, so I'm going to end that there because I could say a lot more, but, but it's a reaction and it's often the way in which we prevent ourselves from experiencing that extreme stressor again to ensure that we are well. And sometimes we aren't well by protecting ourselves to such a, a great degree. Sometimes people might not leave the house Sometimes they may not engage with the, the outside world because they're doing so much to protect themselves from that trauma. You make me think about how a lot of times in school schooling context, the idea of trauma comes up, particularly racial racialized trauma um, and racial trauma. But schools and districts sometimes absolve themselves from the ways in which they inflict racialized notions of trauma and racial trauma. And so I'm curious if a school principal or a superintendent or even a classroom teacher wanted to rethink resources, right, to make the space kind of resource rich to combat some of the ways in which trauma has been inflicted in those spaces. What would those resources kind of look like thinking, yes, on a micro level, but also thinking like, how do we institutionalize this 
across organizations. Yeah, you hit the nail right on the head there. So for some people, trauma might be this very individualized process. But what you're talking about is how do we think at a higher level of what we're doing to inflict harm on kiddos, especially racial harm. So when you're thinking about my, my, the classic example that I go to as a former educator myself is thinking about that Monday after an event when the first thing that you want to do is start teaching the lesson for the day and you don't even acknowledge the humanity of Tamir or the fact that your children are the same age or look exactly like this kid who was just snuffed out, right? If you're trying to jump over what's happening, you're reinforcing that the humanity of that child who was just snatched away from us does not exist, that your children who you're looking at to teach this content that you think is so important, that they don't exist, that their humanity is is somehow less worthy of learning the ABCs for that day. So that, that for me is such a classic example of reinforcing this dehumanization when we don't talk about it, when we don't address what's just happened. And that could be a national event or a more local event. And that that also means that schools and teachers have to be very informed of what's going on in their communities as well, which is an issue for people who don't live in those communities. There needs to be ways that they are staying up on information. They are knowing what's going on because when we hop over these challenging situations that our, our children face often in communities, we are reinforcing that the lives that may have been lost or the challenges brought upon people, the, the resources that aren't being provided equitably, that that doesn't matter and that we don't have the space or the time to think about and then to do something about that, right? There, there are always going to be individual level slights that we do because we're humans and we're imperfect. So we might say something to a Black boy about, I'm thinking about a student who I had where he was experiencing so much stuff that I can imagine teachers easily looking at him and doing what teachers do on a larger scale, suspending him, expelling him, detaining him so that now he's not getting the same class time. Now, of course, those smaller things do lead to greater statistical differences across the board. So I'm not saying that they don't matter. But what I am saying is that we're we're human. We have a long ways to go of figuring out how to work with children individually. But at a larger scale, when you're talking about resources and policies and practices, time and time again, we've shown that the children we're serving and the experiences that they're going through simply don't matter in our classroom that we would much rather stick to this curriculum of quote academics and not the socio-emotional or psychosocial or any of these very real external things that are happening in the lives of our children. Given everything that's happened in the last 20 plus months, uh, is youth are coming to school and the adults uh, with a lot of grief, um, a lot of great senses of loss. I'm curious how, what would you suggest for folks working in schools? And you kind of touched on this a little bit um, to help youth, particularly black youth kind of process COVID-19 and everything that's been happening in this current moment. Yeah. I'm going to zoom into Detroit for that. And, and again, I think we have to look at 
national and local stats. We have to really think about what's going on in our own district to to make this case. Um, But in Detroit, there have been studies around who has passed. So if you are Black, there's a 2.5, you know, times um, statistical gap of, of, of you having passed, but it's also a four times uh, amount that you know someone who's passed if you're Black. So even if you're a Detroiter, Black and white Detroiters know people differentially. So Black Detroiters are much more likely to know someone who's passed than a white Detroiter, which for me is, is again talking about we can live in that same city. A teacher can say, oh, I live in Detroit. I bought a property in Detroit, but you don't have the same lived experience as your neighbor or as someone who's, who has property a mile away in a different part of Detroit. So I say that because your children in that classroom likely know someone and, and likely know someone close who has passed away. So if we're not talking about the real impact of grief, lamentation, death, loss, desire of, of missed opportunities with that person or with their own experiences. They wanted to go to prom. They wanted to have a, a kindergarten celebration, you know, for graduation. Th- these are losses that for many people have not been contended with. So that would be the first thing. Can we a- actually just acknowledge loss? The second is really going through a series of P's. And I thought about this uh, for, uh, for a discussion yesterday. There's, there's policy at the big P and small P level. So is your school utilizing screeners for kiddos to get a sense of their mental health and well-being? Do we even have a sense of, of what the need is in the school? So can you do screeners in the school to get a sense of what that is? Can you think about parental dynamics? Can you bring the parents and the families to, to say what types of conversations have you all been having at home? How can we supplement or learn from? what you all are doing. So that's the parental dynamic. The P, the peer dynamic, how do you get kiddos talking to each other about grief, loss, excitement, right? So it doesn't always have to be negative, but how can you think about future orientations? But how do you get the peers talking to each other again? And then the personal, how do you either as a teacher reflect on where you need to grow, how you can have those conversations, or how can you, for the child, Say here are some of the strategies that you can engage in for self care or or um, the work that one needs to do for themselves to be well. So there's so many levels and layers that we can attack this from. We can go all the way down the ecological core, right? Of like, how can we better help our children to process the very real stress and trauma that's coming out of their city? And as someone again who was sick herself at the top of this 20 months, have worked with people who continue to be sick and who continue to experience loss. One of my closest friends right now is sick with COVID. Like it's been unending. So if you did one check-in, that's not sufficient. You can't just check that off your list. You can't just do one screener. You, You have to really implement and integrate these strategies because we're still living with it. This is so rich. I mean, this is, it's, it's powerfully, practical and it's like theoretically rich like it's undergirded in, in research and I you just got me thinking so many things but I'm I'm curious um what would you say to 
the classroom teacher who may not have the psychological resources to do a screening for all children? Like, how might that teacher start to check the temperature psychologically, emotionally, like where their students may be? You know what I mean? On Monday. Yeah. Yeah. It's you actually said the exact thing that we do in our lab. So, yes, I'm a clinical psychologist and I'll I will afford you that. But we literally do temperature checks every single time I talk to anyone in my lab. I say, give me a high and a low. What's going on? Which lets me hear from week over week. If somebody's just like, I don't have a high at all. These are my lows. This is what's happening. I'm now attuned to, man, that person really sounds like they're going through. I've at least heard from them something. So whether it's for that week or if it's over a series of weeks, now my ears are more attuned. But I would again say that the the responsibility does not fall always on the teacher to do something about it, but we can do assessments in our class. We can get a sense of what is that temperature? How do we check in with that individual? And then here are the resources that we're pulling from. I'll, I'll say like, and I'm sure, well, I'm not sure. I, I would assume that you might be the same way. If a teacher from a Detroit public school hit me up at any time and said, yo, students are struggling. I'm like, what's the address? What time you need me there? Or here's my colleague. And this is what we'll do. Like, this is a pleasure of mine. So how do you work with the folks in your school, knowing that schools are often understaffed with mental health resources? How can you then check in with people at the local university, community college, et cetera, practitioners in the area who might need an hour or two in the in the world who can come to your classroom and talk to your kiddos on your behalf. We don't all have to be a catch-all. And I know for teachers, that's often how we see ourselves. You got to be the nurse. You got to be the therapist. You got to be the parent. Like Sometimes you think you got to be all those things. But if you just get that temperature check, if you just notice Sheila is not doing okay, and I've heard it now for three weeks at a time, let me go ahead and, and tap somebody who does have that expertise to help to come in to talk to Sheila, to refer out to Sheila. I want to pivot slightly a bit and talk about some of your work um, that you've been doing with colleagues around what you all are calling Embrace, and particularly how Black families uh, just have ongoing talks <laughs> with their 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 youth, young people, and, and children about race and racism. And you know, I as I was thinking about this question, I um, when our oldest daughter, who was five, was probably less than a year old. She was in the back seat and I was driving and the cops were behind me. And I noticed like they they were behind me for like a mile. And the psych I I just like tensed up. You know what I mean? I like I psychologically and I I could tell she, I, I had a sense that she could sense what I was feeling, right? And it made me think like even when she got older, I wow, yeah, I had such a visceral reaction to it. How do I start to enter into these conversations with her? So I'm curious, could you talk about your work around embrace and like how might black parents start to have these conversations with black youth, their children and young people? Yeah, I'm going to totally dodge your question for a good reason, though, I promise, Um, because what you said is so important about your own self 
and recognizing things that are happening in your own self. And I, I'll share why that's such a unique part of Embrace um, relative to other work that we do. Uh, but first, I want to say for your experience, how common that is. And one of the things that we use in Embrace is this New York Times op doc series <clears throat> about Black parents and Black children and raising Black children um, in the 2000s. And there's this father who I'm seeing who has his hands on an imaginary wheel and he's recounting this exact story. His child was older in this case. So he said, I was driving and the cops pulled me over and I realized how tense and anxious I was in that moment. And then I looked in the rearview mirror and I saw how anxious my child was because they saw me anxious. And it was this like this parent who is keenly aware of what's happening with this police officer, keenly aware of what's happening with their child, keenly aware of what's happening with their self. And when we think about what Embrace does, it is mindful of all of these dynamics. What what do we think about the outside world and its impact on us? How does that impact our children? How does it impact ourselves? So we're mindful of these different levels in our work where I think a lot of parenting programs are focused squarely on what you tell your child. So that's why I'm going to avoid that question a bit because you can get that information and there are so many handouts and people can encourage you on like, you know, here's what to say and here's what to do. We think about the why and the how a lot more than just the what. So the work of Embrace, which stands for Engaging, Managing, and Bonding Through Race, it's about this dynamic of the talk and what it does to us and why we have this talk with our children, what it does to us emotionally, what the process of talking to our children does to us as humans, because before we're ever a parent, we were a child, we were an adult, we were someone experiencing what the world was doing to us. And now we're charged with talking to our children about this very real dynamic. And yet people act as if it's just a, a task without any of the baggage or the emotion that comes with it. So we do a lot of unpacking, a lot of processing. And for parents, some of whom are sharing with us things that happened 20, 25 years ago that they've never told anyone, that they're finally taking off of our shoulders. That anxiety that you mentioned, those shoulders that are lifted and like the ears that are crunched down, we physically see a melting. We see those shoulders relax. We, we watch as the smiles come on their face after they're saying, you know, I've been holding that in for 25 years and it's finally off of me now. So you can imagine how those conversations, because of that experience, were shaped. And now the parents are able to unpack some of that and look with a fresh set of eyes on how they want to actually engage in that conversation rather than responding to the anxiety or trauma or fear that they have been gripped with for so many years. So that's what I would say Embrace does. We, we, we treat parents as humans. We treat children as humans. We let them have their own space to just process, unpack, and then we bring them together. And we say, what was it like to unpack all of that? Now, what do you want to say with a fresh set of eyes? Now, with some of the psychoeducation that we've provided, how would you want to do these strategies? How can we support you in that how versus just the what? You, you make me think about um, the implications that this has for people working in schools mm -hmm. with young folks. Um, 
principals, uh, staff, uh, custodial workers, psychologists, counselors, yeah. teachers. I, I'm, I'm curious, what are the implications around this why of embrace and particularly folks who maintain like a critical orientation to their work and they understand race and racism and how that shows up? What are the implications for them in talking with youth in schools about race and particularly black youth? Schools are interesting places. And you said this at the beginning of our conversation around how do we recognize some of the trauma that we're even inflicting on kiddos and what you just set up this kind of premise of people who are aware of race, have knowledge of it and have 30 jobs to do, have 30 tasks to do. I'm, I am really thinking about how challenging, I want to just acknowledge how challenging it is to educate, right? It is incredibly hard because we are asking you to be so many things and to be mindful of so many things all at once. Yet what I have acknowledged and what I think, you know, we just know about who is in this classroom, who is in these leadership positions, people who historically have a privileged identity have not had to think about their race. They don't have to think about the implications of what they say of their experiences often. And then we're met with this challenge in 2020 of how do we sit at home for the first time in a long time and have to contend with something. Before we were too busy in happy hours, we were able to say, I don't know that kid. And so we just kept moving. But now we're sitting on a couch, we have nothing else to do, and we're watching this moment that has brought people to ask this question, what can I do about it? And I think that was this collective response. And I'm taking kind of the circular route because I just, I'm seeing how I'm getting back to today. But the question du jour last summer, what's the book? What's the thing? What can I do? People were really searching for these four minute solutions to 400 year problems. They wanted it to be done now. They wanted to fix it now, which I think is important. And I, I want to high five and salute everyone who wants it to do something about it. The question, though, is how do you have sustained investment, understanding, interrogation, investigation into this not only lifelong problem. It hasn't just existed for your lifetime. We're talking the lifetime of our country. We're talking the expanse of this notion of race or caste systems. We're talking about problems that have existed well before you and will likely exist well beyond your finishing of that book, well beyond that one march that you went to. So the implications for me are how do you investigate and interrogate your beliefs the impact of those beliefs, those conversations that you have beyond just this year, beyond just this one class, but for the rest of your professional life and beyond, frankly, how do you think about that child hearing this news, watching that image, 
and then going out into a world that tells them time and time again, you are different, you are dysfunctional, you are deficient, you are not up to the standards of these other people. And yet we're bringing you into a classroom on a Monday, just trying to teach you about ABCs. Like it's, it's just so much greater than your job as this educator. It, it, you, you are really thinking about your role in this system for that child and how you can better process for yourself. What are the things that you've experienced? What are the things you've done to perpetuate this problem and how can you as one individual, but then as a grade, as a school, as a district, start to unpack this and consistently work at this with your families. There's a part of me that feels like most of these systems ain't worth trying to make more equitable because they are founded on they are predicated on and they're reproduced by black violence. Like it, it requires somebody to be having an inequitable experience. It requires black death. And so I don't know. It's, it's this piece of wrestling with how do we start to create a completely different reality, an alternative material reality that's not based on this which we have but then i'm trying to think like how do you psychologically get to a place this otherwise place when everything that you know is based on this current existence and so i don't know i'm curious your reactions your thoughts to <laughs> no you do you do know it's giving matrix it's giving like you know it, it's you do know and you're saying it beautifully. This is actually my push against the, the use of the term school reform, because if you take the same ingredients and try to form them differently, they're still the same ingredients. So you can shape it whatever way you want. But but we still have this issue that the form was fixed on deficit, death, dysfunction, all of these these challenging terms. Right. So and one other thing that you said, I'm a. a a mentee of Howard Stevenson, who is someone who utilizes a lot of metaphor, a lot of um, visual uh, depictions. And so I, I was telling him one day, uh, I was cooking some spaghetti and I had a pot of water on the stove and I was watching it bubble and I put my oil in and I was watching as all of these oil, I don't know, cells, I guess. <laughs> I don't know what you would call it. Uh, but these oil cells, right, are starting to wage war with these bubbles. The more virulent these bubbles, the, the more you start to watch the cells kind of collapse. And there was this one cell of oil that was just resilient. It was just like, we're not going to get impacted by this boiling hot water. But over time, it too broke up and became part of this uh, larger pool of oil. And I told him at that moment that systems finally connected, this idea of systems theory of what happens when we engage in change with systems that are overbearing and bubbling and hot and vicious and large 
And the goal of the system is to break any opposition down and to bring you into that system. So we're watching this cell of oil resist and do what it's doing in the best way that it can. But it eventually became a part of the oil that lost the, the battle, right? Which is what you're describing. We, we are trying to have individual people or individual schools or individual districts go up against a system that was designed for 25% of its people to succeed and the rest to be in the service industry, right? Like that's what public schools were designed to do or were designed to on, you know, paper and in practice, not give people, children of color, equitable education. So th this is what our material is. And the, the last thing I'll say about this, even though I ain't answer your question for nothing, but the last thing I'll say about this is I, I remember being younger and saying, if we could just have a year, if we could just stop for a year and then we would create this curriculum that would be like nationally connected. And then our children would be equitably served across the U S like I was so geeked and people are like, when are you ever going to get a year without education? When is that going to happen? Enter COVID-19. We have this opportunity to actually think about what it would look like to better serve our children. But we watched this recreation of, well, these rich parents went and took their kids into a pod over here. And these parents who had all the resources got, you know, tutoring and additional services and all that. But here goes Johnny, who doesn't have the Wi-Fi, the tablet or nothing. And he's being disserved. So rather than saying we're just going to figure out a new strategy for all of our children when they come back. And, and I'll grant you, no one knew what was going to happen. We didn't know that it was going to be a year plus. So I'm not trying to to, you know, point fingers at anybody because nobody knew. But here we actually had this year to think about what would equity look like? What would equality? What would the need to revamp this entire situation look like? And we just got more inequitable. Like it just, it just entrenched further this idea that it's not designed for those kids. Like we, we don't want them to succeed. And, and, and you're going to see that with uh, all this disparity. So I, I'm a little despondent and I'm with you quite a bit that I don't know what to do, but the best thing that I can offer as an interventionist and as someone who believes that it really does take the start of one person. And that might be a fatal flaw of me to think so, quote, smallly, that's not a word, but, you know, to think of, of such a small perspective, like somebody got to make a difference. And so we got to work with people the best that we can. But I'm mindful that that boiling water is eventually going to catch up with that oil. That's that's just what I'm mindful of. I know as we come to a close, one of the things I wanted to ask you about. So recently I've started writing about um, organ this idea of organizational gaslighting and like institutional hypocrisy. Um, and it's this idea essentially that, you know, gaslighting doesn't just happen on an individual interpersonal basis that I think in some ways it's structured into the culture into the systems of the way that institutions are set up to function. So you're calling out something and critiquing something that's straight up just, just racist, but they, they flip that and try to make you think you're crazy, right? And so school districts who in 2020, they passed a George Floyd and a Black Lives Matter 
resolution. And then in 2021, they passed the anti-critical race theory resolution, right? And so you're working up in that mug and you're like, what is going on? But there's a part of you that knows what's going on. Historical analysis tells you, but like, how do people psychologically um, be and maneuver in those contexts? Yes. Yes. And this is this is where more of the individual level work and, and, and really our whole conversation, this is where it, it all dovetails. Because you gotta know who you are. You gotta know who your people are. You gotta know what what is truth. And even now, more critically, like what it, what is even truth is being called into question, right? So like you you have to be so resistant to notions that you are missing a few marbles that as you go into these conversations, as you go into these uh, discussions with folks in your district, in your classroom, or if you're, you know, uh, higher ed, like, you know, these spaces where you say, this is my experience. This is what I know to be true. This is what the data show. And you're just armored, right? And people are going to continuously try to attack your thought or make you think X, Y, and Z. And that's why you have to have your group of people that you can check in with to say, this happened. Have I lost it? Is, is this the case? And people will be like, no, nah, girl, that's not true. So like it, you, you have to be resistant to notions. You have to have a group of people that continuously surround you so that you have a resistance to those notions. And you have to be perseverant. You, you have to know if you get fired for teaching about the history of America in your classroom, you get like that that is that is the case but i would much rather be fired than to walk around and pretend like these people's grandparents ain't do a got dog on thing back in the 1950s and 60s and that their grandchildren ain't the ones repeating it now like i i I be got dog you just gonna have to fire me at that point because that's just who i am um and that's just what i'm gonna have to hold on to so i think i mean terrence the, the question you're asking is we would need a whole different podcast and just to like sit down but i think you know for me the let me first acknowledge that you you are right. So let me take away the gaslighting from what people might say about your hypothesis on gaslighting. Yes, 5,000%, you're right. Um, and what you're not saying explicitly, but but kind of did, then we were incentivized to do, to do the work for like a year. So it's like, here are some grants, here are some special topics, and now we're actually going to cause you to burn out because we're asking you to do all this work. So when we're talking about gaslighting, it's there are levels, I think, and gradations of it where it's just like, that's the, when the, to me, the gaslighting really shows up. It's like, Oh, you're just not effective enough as a researcher to fight against this monster. Not, we didn't think about the appropriate resources that it would take the sustained effort. Gaslighting is real and it shows up in, in myriad ways. Well, and, and I, I'm also mindful. I, I want to actually circle back because your question was, what can we do? You, you, you talked about gaslighting, then you said, what can we do? So I want to make sure that I end it with, you have to be resistant to, that means, you know, you continue to, to do the self care, the self work and, and knowing of self, be very secure in your identity. And again, these are spaces where we're often being chipped away at, especially in, higher ed of who we are and what our worth is, but you have to consistently do work for yourself. You have to get the squad of folk around you who are going to support you. And again, at the end of the day, if that school or that district or the university is not supportive of you, 
why on earth would you want to be there? Right. And there are other ways of making impact. Right. So if I'm not saying everyone should get fired, but being mindful that there are so many of us who would be down to start a consultation firm or like another industry, our own school, like whatever it looks like, there's enough of us to to say, you're right. And we support you and we're going to make the best absolute product that we can to indicate that this is the way of thinking. This is the way of doing and being. To close, we just like to ask a few rapid questions, just whatever comes to mind. All right, here we go. If there was a movie made about your life, who would you want to play you and why? I mean, me, clearly, because I need to be on screen. Next, go. <laughs> um, okay, I guess. Ooh. Okay, I was watching Girlfriends last night with the homegirl, Tracy Ellis Ross, <clears throat> because we we got the mix experience. We got um, the energy of like, single and happy and child-free and like we living in that energy. So I'm a, I'm a tap in my mixed sister and Tracy. Nice, nice, nice. Uh, next question is, you know, you weren't uh, a professor. Uh, what, what other career would you be doing? Interior design. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I got some skills. The girls got <laughs> some skills. Gotcha. Gotcha. If you could, um, if you had a nine, hour plane ride and you could talk to one person and have a conversation for nine hours, who would that be and why? OMG. So good. Well, first and foremost, I'm that neighbor on the plane who will talk to you even if I don't know you. So you're going to get these nine hours of conversation anyway. Oh, sugar snaps. Nine hours. Okay, this is going to sound odd, but this is this is my answer for a lot of these types of questions. Okay, Adolf Hitler was a very interesting human being and his way of thinking about creating the world as he saw it and not as it was or not even as he was is such an important way of understanding psychologically of what we're seeing in the world even today. So I would like to, to learn more from him. I don't know if I would enjoy that conversation, but it would be an important one for me to have for the work that I'm doing. Uh, before we end, where can folks uh, learn more about your work, get in contact if they want to partner with you and just learn more, where can they find you? Yeah. So if you have your 10 fingers available or 10 toes, go ahead and put them up. It's Rihanna Elise, and you should be able to get through all of your fingers only with that. So it's R-I-A-N-A. That's on one hand, E-L-Y-S-E. Rihanna Elise, you can find me on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, um, and you can also find my website, RihannaElise.com. So 10 fingers, 10 toes, that's how you find me. Sweet. And we'll be sure to drop those in the show notes. I just can't thank you enough, uh, Dr. Anderson, for coming through on the podcast. You dropped a lot of gems and uh, I'm deeply, deeply grateful and thankful for your time and the work that you do. And so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Green. And peace to you all. All right, y'all. Peace. We out this mug. 
Well, that is it, folks. Thank you so much for joining the Just School podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, and I am so excited and really looking forward to our time together during future podcasts. What I need you to do is to please hit the subscribe button, share with a friend, please leave a review, love reviews. And if you want to hear more from me, you can head on over to www.raciallyjustschools.com. That is www.raciallyjustschools.com. When you join our community, I have a free video for you on three tips that will make your racial justice work better. And again, if you love the show, hit subscribe, rate it, and leave a review on iTunes. And until next time, peace.